You're listening to the Teak Nation Podcast, where we strive to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from frauders and friends of TKE. Welcome in, Teak Nation listeners. We are thrilled to have you on this episode of the podcast. In this episode, we are going directly to our interview with frauder Andrew Hughes, who is actively climbing Mount Everest. We are thrilled to have him as a guest and hope that you enjoy this edition of the Teak Nation podcast. All right, we are thrilled, very, very, very excited now to welcome in uh, our first guest of the Teak Nation podcast that is outside of the United States of America, outside of North America, actually. It is Andrew Hughes. He is at base camp. Uh, at Mount Everest right now, speaking with us. Uh, it is what nine hours and forty-five minutes time difference, which really threw me off. Is there is there a particular reason for the forty-five minute interval there that that you're aware of? No, I've uh, right. it's it causes me complications all the time actually. <laughs> so uh, I, I think Nepal is just being uh, unique and individual. Um, but yeah, it's definitely hard to keep in touch with family uh, back home with that. Well, we uh, we made this work, which is which is a good uh, good step, I think. So, Andrew is a uh, member of the fraternity from the Kai Chapter University of Washington, and really uh, has has spent most of his adult life climbing mountains. Uh, has achieved six of the seven summits, which are the highest peaks on each continent. Became the fastest man I saw last year to complete the Antarctica trifecta, which just, I mean, it sounds fun to say. I'm assuming it's also insanely impressive, but a lot of a lot of really impressive accomplishments that that you have achieved in the climbing world, and now you're going after Everest for the second time. First time you uh, you, you didn't quite make the summit right, um, and and now you're going after it for round two. Yeah, yeah. The, I was uh, about about a day and a half away from the summit at about twenty two thousand feet, and uh, pneumonia just kind of blossomed in my chest. And I kind of uh, the promise I always made is that I come home, and so I think there's a a lot of uh, humility required when you're kind of searching for great heights. And so I kind of pulled my own cord on that one and was supposed to come back last year, but we all know that the, the world kind of right. came to a standstill and just really grateful that things lined up to come back this year um, for the opportunity to kind of complete the seven summits and keep pursuing the Explorers Grand Slam. And what's the Explorers Grand Slam? I saw that too. I, I have, did not have context for what that was. Yeah, so Explorers Grand Slam, it's been done about, about 60 people before. It's, it's doing all seven summits and then uh, additionally kind of reaching the North and South Pole by ski or some other man-made man means. So uh, I'm actually just down to Everest in the North Pole right now. So I'm signed up for next year if everything lines up that. So hopefully Everest works out and then uh, the North Pole next year. And then I'll join that really special list of individuals uh, to complete that. Well, my, my first, my first big question to you, and this, we could probably spend the entire interview on this, but I myself, nor I'm guessing most of our listeners have ever scaled a mountain of any sort, much less the tallest mountain on each continent. What is the physical and not just physical, the mental preparation, like to put yourself in the right mindset and the right physical shape to, to achieve these tasks. I shouldn't even call them tasks, feats. <laughs> I mean, I think the, I was told earlier on when you show up, Kind of at, at base camp of a mountain, any physical training you've done is, is the most you'll ever be able to do. The mental and the emotional aspect is what you can always work on. And, and climbing mountains is more mental than anything else. Um, a lot of people that climb mountains show up thinking that they can just 
uh, conquer these things. But um, really, you have to have an incredible amount of patience. Um, you really have to relinquish your grip and control um, because there's so much that's out of your control when you climb. But climbing a mountain like Everest takes takes kind of years um, of training and not just training physically, like physically the, the training never really ends, but it's more about kind of creating systems for yourself that you can take care of yourself and take care of your teammates and make sure that when you show up that you are a, a strong and contributing member of your team, just like in the fraternity as well. Like you, you want to be somebody who contributes and doesn't kind of deter or take away from, from the group. I'm curious, Andrew, when it comes to getting into mountain climbing itself, how did that start for you? Was it a curiosity? Did you have people in your family who were involved or friends? You know, how did that connection even start? And, and if you can, from there, expound upon how do you get into a place where you start traveling around and climbing, mount, climbing mountains? I'm sure you can't just fly in and start climbing up a mountain. So what, what's even the, the yeah. logistics around that process? Yeah, um, it actually it actually links back to the fraternity. I mean, I grew, I grew up in the Northwest, um, and so Mount Rainier was always on my horizon. It's just something that's special and iconic for people to live in the Pacific Northwest. I always wanted to climb it, but it was, it was actually um, my fellow uh, pledge brother and Preetness actually at the half of the time had like climbed Rainier the, the, the season before. I'd always wanted to do it, and I was graduating, and he gave me all this information, and I just sat on it for a while, but it kind of just planted that seed that eventually took root and, and couldn't, find, couldn't find anybody to do it with me. So I just signed up on myself and uh, I never really had, my family's relatively risk averse and I'm, uh, and I'm always about mitigating risk, but like at the end of the day, uh, the mountain just called me, um, as I say, and it wasn't just the climbing itself, but it was the, the community that I found there, it was the preparation. I think for, for most people, I mean, where, where we live kind of limits sometimes what we can do, but on our team here, there's people from Chicago and there's not a lot of mountains in Chicago. And, but there, if you really want to climb, I, I think you just pick something that's like as close as can be and just train for it and, and find um, whether you like that structure, whether you like that. And, and I think it's more important than anything else. It's not about the mountains, but it's just about beginning the outdoors. I love big mountains, but more than anything else, I just the natural world. So everybody can do that and they can find ways to do that um, in their backyards or the local parks. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the traveling aspect, it was just once I fell in love with it, it was something that I found uh, I had a window of opportunity to kind of really pour myself into it. And I think I just saw that I knew that life as it usually happens presents other things that kind of maybe will limit my time frame. So I just concentrated about half, half a year, every year to just climbing and traveling, doing more than just the seven summits I've done. I've climbed on all seven continents now in the last four and a half, five years. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to do that. Uh, maybe not to the extent two months away from home, family, friends, it's a long time, but uh, it's, it's definitely going to be something that's always going to be a part of my life. What type of financial investment has that been for you? Yeah. I mean, you have to prioritize. Um, I, I started off doing the, the cheaper climbs and expeditions, but I, I definitely, kind of restructured my life to create a way where there was passive streams of income as much as possible, created um, ways that I could manage work, um, kind of like this being all the way in Nepal at Everest Base Camp and still being able to kind of like work remotely um, on different projects. Um, and it, the, the fascinating thing is that actually the more I kind of put my heart in and my passion into this path, the more business and other opportunities kind of present themselves. I just started a new company about a month before I left that's going to deal with like 
parts of the kind of outdoor gear world that haven't really been addressed um, that I've seen and like dealt with um, over the years. And so it's just, I've, I think really at the end of the day, when you, when you follow your heart and your passions and you really kind of pour yourself into them, sometimes like new opportunities you never even saw for yourself present themselves. And, and uh, I'm excited actually to get home and just kind of start keep on building on those things. On the on the logistical end that, that Donnie touched on a little bit, just in the little bit we've been going back and forth, you're talking about going out for rotation, coming back to, to base camp, and then going back out for second rotation, and then going to the – it's not like Donnie mentioned. You don't just show up and stand at the base and look up at the top and yeah. right, here we go, right? So what's the – What's that process of, of how long it takes from start to finish to get from the base to the summit and, and all the different ways that you work in a team and, and work together to make that happen? Totally, yeah. I mean, so we, the, the, the overall kind of Everest expedition or an 8,000 meter peak is usually about 60 days, about two months. And it's because, for instance, right now I'm, we're living at 17,500 feet, which is about 3,000 feet higher than any mountain in the continental United States. Um, and nothing heals here, nothing, nothing um, to get the kumbu cough or anything else, it, it doesn't go away. Uh, and so the, the acclimation process is, is why it takes so long to climb this mountain. Um, the, bo- the human body is not meant to live at this altitude. So the trek in actually is part of that. We, we kind of climb, the, the ideal goal in mountaineering is you, you climb high and you sleep low. And so what we do um, is try to slowly acclimate our bodies as naturally as possible during the trek in, starting essentially at Kathmandu, which is more or less sea level, and then arriving at base camp at 17.5. The rotations, um, different teams and different people have different um, goals, but the, the general format is the first rotation gets you up to about 21,500 feet, uh, which is a big spike. And then you come back down to base camp, 4,000 feet lower, let your body recover for a few days. And then our second rotation go all the way up to about about 24,000 feet, um, and we'll just tap that and go back down to base camp again. It's about a four-day rotation, and that's another huge spike in our body, making it acclimate and kind of like work really hard and drop back down again. And then between our second and third rotations, we actually do a drop back, um, usually about, sometimes up to about 5,000 feet, 6,000 feet to a lower village, and that'll give us, the, our bodies, a chance to really like heal itself, which is impossible to do at this altitude. Nothing, nothing like if, um, like most of us right now have this kumu coughs from the cold air and the high altitude. So we go down there, our bodies soak up all the oxygen, we'll helicopter back to base camp, and then we'll begin our summit push probably around maybe like about May 12th um, with a hopeful summit around like May 19th. And I'm actually trying to do both Everest and Lotsu, the fourth highest mountain in the world as well, back to back. So I'm going to be up in the death zone for about four to five days. Um, on oxygen by then, um, but we don't use oxygen until our summit push. So everything right now is just our bodies working as hard as possible to kind of like get used to this. I, w- I was kind of thinking I wasn't super impressed by Everest, so I'm glad you threw in the fourth highest peak back to back as well to to really push yourself. So that's that's good call. Yeah, yeah. The, well, the, the I mean the, the thing is you basically climb both mountains at the same time. Uh, you climb the, the slopey face, and they kind of there's a saddle that um, Everest is definitely. I mean the it's not easy, but you're never going to be closer to be able to do both at the same time. So the, the goal is Everest. And if the body is willing, I hope we'll do uh, Lotsi as well, which will be great. Now, a lot of your answer there talked about the body. Inter- I'm interested from the guy who had that conversation with your preetness senior year of yeah. college to now, how much have you learned about your body and 
Andrew, what's the difference? What are you doing when you're like the rest of us mortals down near sea level? What are the things you're doing there to prepare for when you're in places like you are now? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the body is, is something that um, I'm almost 40 now and, and the body is not what it used to be when I had that first conversation. Um, I, I think what, it, what it's taught me to do is you just have to constantly be re uh, evolving how you, you self-care for yourself. Self-care I think is important. And I think like the last year in particular with COVID has shown the importance of self-care when it comes to both mental and physical. Um, some of us not being able to do what we used to do, train how we used to train. So I think you just have to be kind of kind on yourself, but also committed in finding ways to work within the maze of uncertainties that exist when you're kind of preparing for, for anything in life, whether it's climbing a mountain or um, prepping for a marathon or a triathlon. For me, uh, as I get older, it's really about like diet and ensuring that I'm putting things into my body that are um, going to help me recover um, and provide energy, just kind of making more conscious choices when it comes to sleep and uh, all those little things that maybe when you're younger, you feel like you can just push through and, and do. But as you get older, I think you just realize that you only have kind of one body to kind of take care of, and it's the vehicle, and you have to really kind of take care of that. So I'm going back at sea level. It's, it's no different than up here. It's trying to be committed to a certain amount of uh, routines when it comes to nutrition. Because um, up here, we're not working out. We're just trying to preserve. We, we show up, we talk about it, we show up with uh, kind of an investment in the bank. Anything that we do that we don't need to do is a, is a withdrawal from that. Uh, you're just trying to like, I think, build as big of account as possible and then maintain as much of that as possible while you're here. So I think for a lot of people, especially a lot of people that climb big mountains are, are type A personalities. It's very hard for them to sit still. Um, but that's what you have to kind of do. You just have to rest and listen to yourself and be gentle. Um, because if you expend it down here because you can't sit still, then you're not going to have it when you need it really badly up there. Andrew, what, what did you learn from your first attempt at Everest? Obviously didn't end the way you wanted it, but I'm assuming you took away some lessons that are helping you right now what did you pull from that experience that's going to help you get the summit this time yeah i mean uh, my, my grandma always said nothing's ever wasted and and i kind of feel that, that was the case with with the first time a lot of a lot of the unknowns and i see it in my teammates sometimes is that they haven't been through the whole process i've been basically through the whole process minus the last little leg to the summit so th those unknowns create these little micro stresses that you're always trying to like wondering about like What's next? Like, what's that next part of the mountain? What's that? What's that like climbing the low two face is going to be? What the good wise fall is going to be? And just also just the system, like that, that the self care system I keep talking about, like coming back this time, I just knew things that I wish I had last time to take better care of myself, to make base camp more comfortable. Because at the end of the day, like this is your home for about, about a month and a half. And so all those things I think help in the, in the end because stress diverts energy away. Um, and so finding ways to like mitigate stresses in your life um, and mitigate stresses on the mountain allow you to kind of, again, keep banking more energy away versus expending that on things that eventually you'll find out about, but which I've already learned through my previous investment in this kind of mountain. Andrew, as you uh, move forward from, from you, you said you're going to go from Everest to what was the, What was the second one? I want to make sure everybody knows what that uh, one is as well. Yeah, uh, Lhotse, uh, L-H-O-T-S-E, fourth highest in the world uh, right now. 
Have you ever done climbs back to back like that? I'm curious if that, if this is going to be a new adventure, even in that room. So, so I've done, I mean, not, nothing to the scale back to back 8,000 meter peaks is, is something I've never done. I've never had an 8,000 meter peak. So how, I mean, how is, it, is that literally, is that literally crazy for someone to do at any level to try to go back to back like this, what you're doing? It's a lot. I mean, they're currently, they're, there's a good amount of people that are trying it this year. Um, I think it's becoming more in favor of the opportunity is there. Um, so they sign up for it and, and, and are trying to do it. But currently, I think it's only around 40 something people have ever done the back-to-back when it comes to Everest and Lhotse. But like the, I've, the, the last few, few years, I've kind of created a few different expeditions where there wasn't just a singular expedition. There was like multiple expeditions back-to-back. When I went after kind of the Oceania area, uh, mountains. We flew to Australia, climbed down there, then flew up to Papua New Guinea, climbed there, then flew to, Car- uh, to Indonesia and climbed there. So it's like 30 days of just travel and climbing. Um, and then we kind of took that to the next level. Me and my climbing partner um, sort of climbed Everest. She's, she's ahead of me in that game. But we, uh, we were in Antarctica and there we basically just did the South Pole, the last degree by ski, had three hours to fly to base camp uh for the highest mountain Vincent massive and then we got back from that we had one night and then flew out to uh, the highest volcano in antarctica which is called mount sidley which had only been climbed i think less than 50 times when we got there so like i was like number 51 to ever climb this mountain it's like one of the most remote mountains in the world but that was like one of those things where it was back to back and i got trench foot frostbite hypothermia like antarctica was relentless on me (laughs) during that whole time but that was one of those ones where just like you're constantly mentally and emotionally having to like bring yourself back um, to that place of being focused on what you're there for. And at the same time, being like present at what you're trying to achieve at that moment, because if you get too, ha- too far ahead of yourself in the mountains or in an expedition, you generally can kind of lose your route. But this is definitely going to be, I think the hardest Al- altitude is the great equalizer of all things. It just, it, it makes the, the most trained person feel like they're the most out of shape in the world. Well, you mentioned earlier how COVID has affected obviously many things and many people around the world. For you, did the last year in COVID, did that elevate the the goals and the things that you wanted to achieve during that time of reflection? Or was it simply just, you talked about being an A personality where you already had these goals, you just became more determined of, I'm going to find a way to make this happen as soon as I can get back out there and start climbing again. Yeah, I, I think... It's weird to say, but I, I think the last year was a true gift, actually. Um, I had been going so fast with so many mountains that sometimes you, 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 you don't have the time to assess the meaningfulness of the mountains themselves and also what is life after the mountains. And, and when the mountains are taken away from you, that gives you that space all of a sudden to kind of think about, like, why is it you climb? What will life look like when you don't climb the same way you do? And, and how can you bring more meaningfulness to the mountains? And so it actually was, uh, I think, really meaningful because it, it, it gave me the opportunity to see that I, what I really want at the end of the day after climbing is not to stop climbing, but to become more of an advocate for people to get in the outdoors, to like break down the barriers that I've kind of seen over the years when it comes to diversity and inclu- inclusivity within the outdoors. Um, and so I'm kind of working and partnering with a lot of different companies like Arterix and just different, uh, different brands who are really working to kind of bring people um, with either disabilities or that are underrepresented because of socioeconomic issues into the outdoors. Um, and that just makes it so much more meaningful 
for me when this is done to be able to have that path and that big adventure ahead of me to kind of work on that um, for the rest of my life, hopefully. I got a, a few, uh, I guess we'll call them rapid fire questions. Just ask you to, to, to give a, you know, rank some <laughs> things or, or give us some personal yeah, yeah. favorites. So um, you've seen more of the world than I would assume 99.9% of its inhabitants, given all your travels and uh, Antarctica alone puts you in that top probably 0.1%. What is your favorite place you've been? Could be the most beautiful scenery, could be the best people. But if I just said, what's the favorite place that you have been in all of your travels, what would you tell me? Uh, Antarctica. It's, uh, I've always, it's otherworldly. It's just some place that you, you have to see to believe and that it will call you back every time what is uh what's the scariest moment you've had in your climbing journey closest call like moment where you said holy crap like i gotta gotta watch that next time yeah and um is it twofer uh getting pneumonia uh, on everest two years ago and basically being on oxygen and having to be evac'd off and spending time at a Kathmandu hospital and taking about two to three months to recover before i could walk normally and breathe normally it's pretty scary um, but also Antarctica, we got pushed back on the summit and I've, there's a storm that I, I never have been in to that level and that cold, um, uh, where half my team got some form of frostbite and it was just, it was, it was terrifying and humbling. And it's just one of the first, only times in my life where I, I didn't want to push forward. I just wanted to go back. And then what, uh, what would you consider to be your, your greatest personal achievement up to this point? I think, uh, gaining a substantial amount of humility through through climbing i the very first mountain i ever tried to climb sent me right back packing to learn more about what it meant to climb the mountain respectfully and i think the the evolution that i've had personally um uh has been one of the greatest things that i've gained through this path awesome andrew listening listening for the last 30 minutes for me beyond it being a phenomenal gift i would say it feels spiritual you know, the, the thing that I gain is you talk about the mountains and you talk about the experiences it it feels spiritual. Can you tap into that or talk about that? Because obviously it's humbling to think about how you can brush with death and, and whether you're a spiritual person or not, doesn't really matter. It seems like you're having a spiritual experience whenever you're climbing the yeah. mountains. It, it, I, I totally, yeah. I mean, I've, I've really viewed the mountains for me have been about communion, not about conquering. And I, there's a unification that takes place on the mountains because the the mountains force you to be so like omnipresent in that one moment that your 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 mind, your body, your spirit, um, they all come together because they have to. And there's just this connection when you're in these amazing places that truly does feel you're like you're connected to like a universal and something greater than yourself. And uh, the way I always people always ask like why why Everest? There's it's so crowded and stuff like that. But for me, like, you know, if, if you're Muslim, you, you, you want to go to Mecca. Um, if you're Catholic, you want to go to the Vatican. I want to pay respect to the highest one in the mountain world. And so I'm here to commune and, and, and experience that. And just like people go to church every Sunday, like I need to go to the outdoors as often as possible to hear the sermon and to have that connection. And so it, it really has become something that is, it's not about taking something on it's about becoming a part of something what goes through your mind when you when you reach a summit you've spent all this time working toward a goal you know I, i'm sure you don't spend a ton of time up there 
for obvious reasons that you've already mentioned, but what is it that that's racing through your mind when you reach a summit and you finally hit that pinnacle of, of what you've been working toward? Yeah. I mean, it's oftentimes for me, it's, you see reflected in the eyes of those you're with the accomplishment, because I, I'm a big believer that, you know, summits are arrived at by yourself. Um, Everybody that helped you in some way prior to that, who supported you and loved you, prayed for you, sent positive thoughts. They're all part of that final step on that summit. And so when you get there, I mean, I never understood why pro athletes cry when they win big championships until I started getting on summits. And I'm a huge crier. Like I get up there and it's, it's a release. And I understand it now. It's, it's a release and just a, a huge sense of gratitude because at the end of the day, the, the mountain provides you the, the opportunity and the invitation to go up there. And if your body is willing, you get that gift. Um, and then you have to do the real work because most like 85% of injuries happen on the descent. So it's also realizing that like the summit in life is usually only half the work um, and not even the most important work because the most important work is actually getting back home to the people that you love. So it's, it's a beautiful marker uh, on an expedition um, and a beautiful moment. And then you got to kind of work back to get to that other beautiful moment when you get to hug the ones you love. What's a, what's a message, Andrew, that you have for, for Teak Nation? Uh, I know that obviously you had a great collegiate experience and been involved here and there and, and been profiled in, in our magazine and now on the podcast, but with this platform and Lord knows how many opportunities we're going to have to talk to somebody who's at 17,000 feet speaking to Teak Nation. Just curious what you, what you want to share with our listeners, any messages? Yeah, I think that there, there's not one path for any of us, but finding communities, whether it's the brotherhood of the fraternity or the family, like the mountain family, those things should be cherished and invested in. They are things that even when you are standing by yourself on a mountain are with you. And what you invest leading up to that will, will always faint away in your heart and your spirit and help you kind of reach those dreams that you want. Last question then. Uh obviously next on your plate is to, to get the summit of Everest, but what's next after that? Do you have your, your next adventure already planned out, plotted out? Or are you just working through this one and then, and then we'll figure it out from there. Yeah. I, ha- I have a few things in the works. Um, a couple new world records. I'm going to try down in the Otacon plateau. There's uh, the highest lakes in the world. I've already climbed down there before the highest volcanoes down there. Um, but they have a few of the highest bodies of water. And so I'm going to try to set a new world record for the highest, um, uh, kayak and the highest stand up paddleboard. I'm basically going to pack them up on these high mountains and like go up to these lakes and, and try to try to get up there and set a couple new world records. It's definitely COVID dependent right now, but ideally, uh, maybe January of next year, um, before and Ant- before the North pole in late March, 2022. It is uh, fascinating, remarkable, impressive, the, uh... Can't, can't think of enough adjectives to describe what you're doing and what you plan to do and what you've done already. So I, uh, I'm honored to get to, to speak with you while you're, you're on your journey. Um, for those listening, can follow Andrew on Instagram. You're tracking your journey there. Can also track on your website, right? AndrewIHughes.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, uh, doing most of the Instagram stuff right now just because it's uh, <laughs> right now the, that's the most internet friendly one for, for some reason. Okay. But yeah. Doing updates uh, across the board, and um, if you do go to the my website, it has a bunch of other tracking stuff when it comes to uh, my Garmin, which basically will be tracking me all the way to the summit, and kind of shows you real time where I'm at. You can actually even send questions via that. So yeah, lots of different ways to kind of 
track and stay in touch. Excellent. Well, again, can't thank you enough for your time for taking a half hour talking with us. Wish you the absolute best of luck. We'll be following along at home and, and hopefully we can chat again sometime in the next six months between your Absolutely. world records and all your feats and fastest and highest. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to chat again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is a, uh, it's always nice to reach back home and kind of talk to people back uh, in the continent. So yeah, you guys look warm and cozy. <laughs> well, don't, don't want to brag, but it is uh, 55 degrees here in Indiana today. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds large. real nice. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate you. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All right. All right. Take care, guys. You too. Stay safe.